Hello and welcome to Tech Shock from Parent Zone, the podcast that looks at the impact of digital technologies on family life for parents, teachers, professionals and policymakers. I'm Vicky Shockbolt, CEO of Parent Zone, and I'm here with Geraldine Bedell, Executive Editor at Parent Zone, except I'm not with her because she's in Greece and I'm in slightly sunny London, but not as sunny as Greece, I'm sure. No, although it's a bit hazy here today, but it is it has been very sunny and it is rather lovely, I'm afraid to say, so I'm really sorry about that and apologetic. <laughs> um, we're also here with Ellie Hansen, Dr. Ellie Hansen, clinical psychologist and author of Pornography and Human Futures, a fascinating overview of the impact of online pornography on its users. Ellie's an old friend of Parent Zone, and we really admire her work. So it's great to have her on Tech Shock. Hello, Ellie. Hello, it's wonderful to be here. Yeah, I'm a huge fan of your Parent Zone and what you do. So it's a, it's a massive privilege to be with you today. Good. Well, that's very good. Grand mutual admiration. <laughs> um, can we start, Ellie, by lo- looking at the extent of the research into harms from pornography? There used to be, I think, an argument that we simply didn't know about the long-term effects. Um, It was too soon, the internet hadn't been around long enough, sexuality was too complex, all sorts of reasons. But now it seems we do actually know quite a lot. Is that right? That is correct, yes. Um, There's a huge body of research now, um, a very wide and rich literature that we can draw upon. um, And within that, some of it's very kind of methodologically robust, Uh, What I mean by that is studies that have employed designs that really help us tease out causality. So we can, if we see a correlation, for example, between um, pornography use and attitudes towards women, um, we can now kind of tease out which came first. Because often uh, there's been this kind of comment made that we don't know, is it chicken or egg? You know, is it that people with certain attitudes tend to watch more porn? Or is it that porn is fueling those attitudes? Well, we now have got that those longitudinal studies um, and the meta-analyses to really allow us to answer those thorny questions. And I guess thinking about that fueling attitudes and shaping people's attitudes towards women and indeed towards sex, one's thoughts immediately turns to the impact of pornography on young people. Can you tell us a little bit about the scale of exposure to pornography amongst young people? Are we talking about most young people, all young people? Um, give us a sense of how big big the reach is. Yeah, it's a really good question um, because sometimes you kind of get the sense that there's a view that kind of all young people are viewing it all the time um, and, and that's not true, uh, thankfully. Um, but having said that, there is... Um, great exposure and and parents are often underestimating um, the likelihood that their own children have been exposed to it. So just to kind of give you a few stats here, um, a a large survey conducted by the British Board of Film Classification um, found that um, 79% of 16 to 17 year olds have seen pornography. Um, Then if we kind of track to lower ages, 11 to 13 year olds, 51% have seen it. Um, and worryingly, I, I think 18% of 11 to 13-year-olds have seen it within the last two weeks. So, And, and 41% of 16 to 17-year-olds have seen it in the last two weeks. So this is showing great prevalence of exposure um, and, and frequent exposure within, within a group of young people. 
Those are really significant percentages. And you suggested that there's impact, evidence of impacts now. And I wondered if you could say something about what those impacts are, what the range of impacts is. Yes, thank you. Um, and maybe just before that, I would just, I, I think it's important to flag up kind of what we're talking about when we're talking about porn, um, because I think there is still this sense that, you know, porn is just kind of, you know, sex and nudity. Uh, it's just reflecting back to people their sexuality, and maybe we'll come on to talk about that that myth in greater detail later on. Um, but I think just to flag up the kind of content that young people are seeing, um, a few a few more stats for our listeners. Um, one study asked young people what they were viewing when they viewed porn, um, and they, this found that seventy percent frequently were seeing men being dominant dominant towards women. Whereas only seventeen percent were seeing were frequently seeing women doing dominant towards men, um, and thirty six percent, so over a third, were frequently seeing women being called names and slurs. Again, a much lower percentage for men. Thirty five percent were frequently seeing consensual, massive inverted commas, violence towards women. Again, a much smaller percentage towards men. So, I mean, there's an awful lot I can say about the content of porn, but but we're not just talking about very straightforward sex and nudity. We're talking about something that is fueling, is pushing certain versions of sex, and these are often versions that are transgressive, impersonal, violent, etc. Um, so, so then, if we come back to a question there about impacts, um, what this large body of research that I was talking about earlier is showing is that porn use is um, linked to reduced relationship satisfaction, um, re- reduced sexual satisfaction, um, in- increased relationship breakups. So that's kind of one set of harms uh, to relationships. Then also we've got the harms in terms of the increase in sexual harassment and violence, which very much maps on to what, we, what we've seen recently um, around the revelations about sexual harassment being endemic in, in UK schools today. Um, one study, for example, found that adolescent porn use um, predicted um, at a later point in time an increase in sexual harassment of six times. So young people who were viewing porn, at a later point in time, they were six times more likely to be sexually harassing their peers than those who weren't viewing porn. And that was controlling for other factors. Um, It also actually increases um, young people's likelihood of being sexually victimised as well. Um, So kind of both sides of that coin, and there's a gender dynamic there. Um, And then it's got other impacts as well on, for example, body image, Um, increases in sexual preoccupation um, and also as I mentioned kind of attitudes that are um, sexually objectifying um, and conducive towards violence and aggression. I could go on but I'll I'll stop there. Those are really frightening figures it is really really alarming and I I have to say it makes me think about how long we've been talking about the issues around porn and the impact on young people. I remember speaking at a conference or maybe eight years ago about online porn and saying that it was something we ought to be concerned about young people watching, consuming. And, and I was accused of being mumsy and, uh, and illiberal. 
and you know I I think we reflect on where we've got to and I would stand by that mumsy um, label every day of the week but those were the arguments that used to be used about porn weren't they that you were um, it was either liberal or conservative permissive or prohibitive I think you would argue that we have moved beyond that and and that ways of looking at pornography that do those kind of very simplistic, um, you're either just not liberal enough or or you're far too uptight, that those days have gone and it just doesn't do justice to the scale and complexity of the effects. I would completely agree. And and I I can really relate to your experience there. And it's, it's really kind of concerning that those of us who have um, taken a critical lens and, and really looked at what's going on are having to kind of run the gauntlet or have done historically um, around these kind of labels of being moralizing or mumsy or prudish and I would say that there is a um, a sexist element to some of that um, criticism um, and also it, it, yeah it, like you say it's just far too simplistic um, what about interesting politically like you say, that it's been traditionally conceived of as kind of breaking down into kind of liberal versus conservative. Um, but actually, I would argue that, like actually many um, child protection issues, there are big blind spots on the right and the left. Um, and I think when it comes to pornography, you've got on the left, you've had sexual libertarianism. So it's kind of sexual freedom at all costs kind of narrative. Um, which has caused a big blind spot. But then on the right, you've had free market capitalism, and that's then flowed into cyber libertarianism to kind of, you know, you know, protect the freedom of the market at all costs. And and those two, those two forces have converged to create this real blind spot around pornography. So I feel with pornography, you've got, you know, I feel that like it's everywhere and it's nowhere. It's having this massive unchecked influence on children and young people, and indeed adults, and yet there hasn't been that concomitant of scrutiny and analysis, and those of us who have been trying to do it have had to run this risk of being um, labelled as prudish, whereas it's completely the opposite of that. I am, I am hugely um, you know, passionate about young people having wonderful relationships and love lives, etc., and that for adults. That's, that's one of the reasons why I'm so concerned about porn. That is so fascinating. Um, And I completely get what you're both saying. I mean, I feel guilty, really, about that not being more sex positive. Um, I I feel people who want to look critically at pornography are made to feel that they're not sex positive. And it's, uh, it's not a very pleasant position to be put in. And that combined with that free market capitalism from the right is a really dangerous kind of toxic mixture. But what seems to draw it all together, it seems to me, is a really deep sexism. I mean, you know, as you say, there is something really sexist about that that prudish, mumsy label that's applied to people who want to scrutinise porn. And I was really interested when you said earlier that consensual violence was in inverted commas the consensual bit um because it seems to me really insidious that um it's bad enough that it's violent but if young people are led to believe that women like the violence um that's even worse so i wonder how the impacts of porn play out differently among boys and girls because presumably for boys um 
there's a lot of pressure to be a, to behave in a certain kind of way. But for girls, it's absolutely awful. So I think what's interesting, um, looking at the effects of, of porn on boys and girls, is that it's they're both very different. There are different effects, but also similar in some ways. So for both boys and girls, porn is increasing um, or increasing the risk of of them taking a performative orientation to sex. And what I mean by that is approaching sexual experiences as, as kind of I, I need to act out a role so it might often acting out a gender role so boys acting out what they think is to be masculine um, which is often to be dominant and girls performing what they perceive to be feminine which is often much more passive and looking to to, to please the man um, or boy and, and to be very focused on their pleasure um, and also tying in with the performative orientation is objectification so approaching the other person and or yourself very much as your body their body versus the the full person that they are Um, and what we find is that when people are approaching sexual experiences as a performance and as two objects um, that that really detracts from their ability to flow flow in their feelings and be attuned to to the other person's feelings um, to be able to have that conversation, which all sexual experiences need to be, a conversation, a non, often a non-verbal conversation, um, but a conversation nonetheless. And I would argue that that conversation is at the heart of sexual ethics and is at the heart of, of consent. I don't think that you can have consent without that uh, mutual attunement to one another. Um, so in that sense, boys and girls are kind of being equally impacted. But But given that we've got massive gender roles at play within porn, um, what that then leads to is that boys are being trained in being dominant um, within sexual experiences and girls are being trained to uh, be submissive and passive. And I, I've got a quote here I just wanted to read. Melinda Tankard-Rice, who's one of the researchers and writers around porn, she says that for many girls, naming and expressing emotional or physical pain is the new taboo because it transgresses the male porn script of a continually upright girl who takes it all with a smile. And that's absolutely mapping on to that stat I offered earlier around the, uh, the number of young people frequently seeing girls and women um, being happy with um, consensual violence, in inverted commas, being enacted towards them within porn. As you describe that, you just think, how on earth can we expect people to develop happy healthy fulfilling sex lives if the script that they're being given is a script that's been decided by um, a producer of porn um, for largely commercial reasons very often I would say and I think we're going to come on to that question about um, porn companies and the income that they make and how they go about making money but before we do I'm just intrigued how do you study porn and manage to stay sane how do you stay above those kind of fairly toxic and really divergent debates around pornography and maintain maintain your sanity I guess Ellie is what I'm asking great question yes and um that takes me back actually to when I kind of first really like like you um you know having looked at this issue for quite a number of years now and it was when I was working at CEOP. Um, the Child Exploitation Online Protection Centre about 
10 or so years ago that I really, um, I, I was tasked with looking into the research on porn um, to, to, to be thinking about kind of what information we were going to be providing to young people um, online about it. And it really was a rabbit hole that I went down and I found it very um, distressing, to be honest, having spent a large part of my earlier career and, and I continue to do focused on sexual abuse. What I what I was just confronted with was, oh, my goodness, there's this industry that is actually um, pushing forms of sex that are very conducive to abuse. And there's a huge number of people viewing it. Um, whereas when you kind of work around sexual abuse, you're at least holding on to the assumption and belief that, that this is that very few people um, behave like this or would want to behave like this. Um, and so, so it's the kind of convergence of those two that I, I found very difficult. Um, so, so how do I keep saying? I think, um, you know, work in progress. Um, I, I think that one has to go through highs and lows with this. I think I, I would not, I wouldn't want to find myself in a place where I'm not affected by it because I think then I've lost something of the subject matter. Um, but you know, it's it's a case of kind of processing it and talking to colleagues. Um, and, and I do maintain, I hope, a healthy practice of um, self doubt and questioning myself because um, I only want to be speaking truthfully on this topic. It is just so important, isn't it? Um, but yes, so in general, I think it's about um, staying connected to other people um, that both support oneself but also help one to kind of critically reflect on this all. Um, and maintaining hope, hope that we are now at a place where we're talking about this, things are moving forward, we've got things like the online safety bill, which are going to do an awful lot around this. Um, so yeah, I think hope has to be in the mix, doesn't it? <laughs> well, it's admirable, I think. And it's great that you're able to stay so grounded. I'm glad you're doing it so the rest of us don't have to. Um, but I, I wonder what's behind it all, you know, follow the money. A lot of porn is free. So what is all this about? How are the porn companies making money out of this, um, out of this kind of pornography? Why is this what they're serving up to their users? Such a good question. And you're absolutely right that we have to look at the money. At, but like you say, People often haven't been doing that because so much of it is free. Um, so how does that all work? Jennifer Johnson, one of the researchers around pornography, uh, talks about the wide, sticky net of free online porn. I think that's a really good phrase. So there is this wide, sticky net, um, which is is going to be what what our children and young people are being exposed to because you know the vast majority of them are not going to be paying for porn. Um, and indeed, the vast majority of adults are also who watch porn are not paying for it. Um, but what they are being snared into is this wide sticky net that then seeks to shape their sexuality towards sexual scripts um, that mean that they are more likely to then pay for it. So I think of this in a colour coded um, diagram. And, and in my report, there is a diagram which which explicates this in, in greater depth but say somebody goes onto a porn site for the first time and their sexuality let's give their sexuality a color it's it's green that porn company that's serving up that site 
will then bombard them. The, the, the porn experience is, is highly bombarding. Uh, users are bombarded with loads and loads of different videos. And, and the message there is you will find the perfect porn for you. And interestingly, the average time spent on a porn site is 10 minutes. And within that 10 minutes, um, on average, viewers are viewing 10 different videos. So it's a very fragmentary experience. Um, and the porn company is, is seeking through that bombard and through practices of surveillance, we can talk about surveillance capitalism here, um, using data on that user to provide them with porn that nudges and shapes their sexuality towards corporate profit. So if they started off with a green sexuality and red is paying for porn, it's shaping them from green into blue, into purple, and then into red. Now, very few people will end up in the red zone, but if their sexuality has been shaped into the green or the purple, then they've been pulled away from their kind of authentic sexuality, their sexuality that we know is tied to greater sex, sexual satisfaction and relational satisfaction. Now, because fundamentally, porn companies can't make money out of relational sexual scripts. So when a young person, you know, fancies the boy or the girl next door. Um, and it's based on that, that chemistry between two people, that, that energy, that spark. Um, yes, physical attraction, but, but more besides. Porn companies can't get into that space between two people. Um, that, that's unknowable to them. That's unreachable. So that type of sexuality, relational sexuality, is, is ignored and sidelined. It, it's actively demoted and sneered at, I would argue. And in its place, porn is um, pushing um, it forms of sex that are impersonal, that are based around coercion, manipulation, um, violence, and just very fundamentally the kind of transgression of normal boundaries that we would, that we would tend to respect in day-to-day -day life. So, for example, we're seeing the rise of incest porn, um, I mean, I recently went onto a porn website and it was something like 50% of the th thumbnail videos were um, were promoting step or, or non-step incest porn. Um, so this kind of transgression of boundaries. It's about certain situations that are transgressive, then also certain bodies, certain bodies being seen to be more sexual than others. So it's pushing certain forms of sex at the expense of a relational sexuality that, that is actually uh, more conducive to our well-being and mental health. That's extraordinary. So if I'm understanding you fully, what you're saying is that because kind of the familiar, loving, interpersonal relationship, sex that, that is front of mind when, well, I certainly think about sex, because that is, it isn't easy to monetize what the porn industry does is to take us into the, that impersonal, hostile, transgressive sex simply because that is more lucrative. So the idea that pornography is really just reflecting human appetites and interests, that's kind of flawed because it's the pornography industry that's shaping that interest and creating it to some extent. Is that right? Absolutely. Yes, it, it's it's mass. It's huge myth to say that porn is just reflecting back human sexuality our, our sexuality has a multitude of potentials we can become aroused by a variety of different things but only some forms of sexual arousal will actually map onto 
other parts of our sexuality, um, like our sexual desire, what we actually want to be turned on by, um, and our and our sexual pleasure, and indeed onto other parts of who we are. So that's the other thing with porn; it it, it splices sexual arousal off from the rest of our sexuality and the rest of who we are and it kind of reifies it its meta message is just follow whatever is turning you on right now just follow that that's your sexuality whereas actually that's such a limited version of who who, what our sexuality is um and it's really dangerous and toxic actually that's a really clear explanation and I think it has been a persistent argument that it's kind of not porn's fault, if you like, um, and that's a really good explanation of, of how that is not true. But I wonder if it's possible for users to consume porn and understand that it's simply a fiction. I mean, is there a sense in which users of porn are distanced from what they're seeing and they know? that it's pornography and that it's not real life and that actually sex in real life is not going to be like that? Or is it more complicated than that, do you think? Yeah, it was a brilliant question. Um, And I think this whole thing around porn being fiction is absolutely fascinating um, because what I would argue is that porn simultaneously narrates itself as fact and fiction um, and it does that for a reason. And, and yeah, I'll, I'll explain what I mean in a bit more detail. So, so for example, some research which interviewed young men who were viewing porn, um, the researcher found that these young men were simultaneously um, talking about pornography as if it were fiction, whilst also talking about it as being um, non-fictional and non-performed sex. So when people are viewing it, they tend to kind of enter into a zone where they're, they're feeling that that porn is real. So, when, they, for example, when they see a woman expressing pleasure, they are believing that pleasure. Um, and that drives immersion in it, that drives arousal to it, um, and, and that can drive um, related feelings of, of dominance, for example, as well. But then when porn is maybe questioned or they're questioning it in themselves, we can then pull out the fiction argument and that protects them from kind of moral concerns it protects the industry from moral concerns um so users are, te- are actually experiencing it both as facts and fiction and indeed i would actually argue that it is really difficult to work out what within porn is fictional and what is fact so much of porn uh, might be said to be amateur porn um and it's impossible for the viewer to know whether that's actually really a couple in their bedroom or whether that's two actors um, doing that, it's, it's often really difficult to know. There's this kind of myth of it being completely fiction, which protects it from these kind of wider questions. I was going to say, it does seem to me that that's terribly convenient for the porn industry as well, that merging of fact and fiction. So they want it to feel very realistic and authentic, and and that's that's what's drawing people into watching it sometimes. But at the same time, they want to maintain that notion that actually it's fictional. It's just, you know, it should be consumed as such. And therefore, they're not they're not to be held accountable for the damage that they're doing to relationships uh, and promoting values that are fundamentally quite often selfish. And 
your research suggests damaging to relationships. I wonder, do you think there's an argument that the porn industry is having a, a wider social damaging effect as well as the effect it's having on, you know, intimate at an individual level? Yes, I do. Um, and there is research looking at this. I mean, just to cite one study uh, which utilised different methods, um, both um, natural and, and experimental, it found that pornography use was increasing unethical behaviour in the workplace, specifically lying. Um, and it found that that was mediated by the increased tendency to objectify people. Um, so uh, if you consume porn, you are at risk of seeing people uh, more as kind of objects, as, as, as instruments for your own ends. Um, and the, research, the wider research looking at objectification finds that when we objectify someone, we tend to see them as having less of a mind, being less sensitive to pain, being less competent, and being less deserving of moral treatment. Um, and that's really quite a stark list when we think about it, because if we see people as less than in, in each of those areas, that then justifies, um, it permits unethical behaviour towards them. Um, and then if I just pivot to another research literature, which has really looked at um, human values and the kind of universe of things that we value, um, and in a just totally in brief, um, in a nutshell, what this finds is that when we spend time indulging in um, things that are more selfish, um, then it's like we've got kind of different balloons in our heads. There's a wonderful diagram of this, again, it's in my report, um, where, uh, you know, if, if you're spending time on selfish things and that kind of balloon in your head expands and the, the balloons that are about kindness and more pro-social altruistic um, values, that they have to shrink in response. Um, so if we are spending time viewing porn, which is encouraging us to focus on number one, and just follow our arousal, and that's all there is to sexuality, um, then we can expect that to have a knock-on effect on um, our commitment to our pro-social values. Um, and there is some research on adolescence that does find a, a link between, between pornography use and um, selfish values and, and less pro-social values. That is really, really troubling. And you're right, I think, that merging of fact and fiction is incredibly interesting because when a man does something to a woman on screen, I don't know, ejaculates in her face, for example, that is actually factually happening, um, even though it's presented as a kind of fiction. So it's easy to see how the, there's a kind of muddling of what's going on here. But one of the things that we find we talk about over and over with with things that happen on the internet is how alert young people often are to the what's going on around them the ways in which they're being manipulated and so on do you think that young people are increasingly aware of how pornography is manipulating them or do you think that the industry is simply too clever and it's all too hidden and transgressive in a way for those discussions to come out into the open how much do you think young people understand about pornography i think it's a bit of, of both and really um that, yeah we are definitely seeing young people speaking out 
a lot about um, pornography and having a critical lens on it. Um, you know, some young people, um, indeed, much more so than than older generations in some respects, you know, those who have been at the kind of front line of this and experiencing it, um, you know, growing up like like Billie Eilish recently speaking out. Um, having said that, there's research shows and, and, and the, 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 with children, young people and adults that generally speaking, we aren't very aware of how our data is being used against us Um that those business practices across big tech are still not really understood as much as they should be. Um, And I would argue that pornography is the most shadowed. So although we've got increasing scrutiny of people like Facebook and Google, um, pornography always seems the the last to get any attention. It's always out of scope. And yet, really, when I look at pornography and, and its business model, it's one of the it's, it seems to be one of the worst offenders when it comes to the manipulation and misuse of people's data. Um, when I went on the MindGeek website, which is one of the uh, main players in in big porn, um, it, but but it hides that it, MindGeek website does not talk about its links to pornography, even though it owns some of the biggest porn sites. Um, they boast about their use of data. Um, you know, here I've got a quote, gathering, storing, processing and analysing billions of data points a day is a colossal challenge that MindGeek engineering embraces. MindGeek data scientists have developed sophisticated machine learning algorithms to mine the data and extract the meaning from the noise. And it also talks on the same web page about this being used to drive better business decisions. So they are open about their use of people's data, um, you know, in in that part of the internet, and yet on these big porn sites, there is there's no mention of that apart from these very difficult to read tiny print uh, privacy notices that that nobody ever reads. In short, I would say that there's very little awareness of the manipulation at play. I think you touch on something there that's so interesting, and that is that um, public perception, I think, that persists of the pornographer as the slightly grubby, Soho-esque, um, vaguely amateurish person generating porn, whereas the reality is that these are some of the most sophisticated businesses on the internet. Um, as you described, MindGeek, massive company there, whose expertise is really around data and data profiling which is kind of terrifying Um, and speaking of terrifying I think of all subjects this is the one that terrifies parents arguably the most it's something they find really really difficult to talk to their children about Um, but what would you say to parents we are a parenting organization first and foremost and it's a question we get asked all the time how do parents address this subject and is it do they need to do you think it's important yeah, yes. And, and uh, you know, speaking personally, I, I've talked about when I first started looking into this whole issue 10 or so years ago. And at, at that point, my son was um, very young um, and now he's 12. Um, I, but, but at the time, I thought to myself, oh, well, the government would have caught up and, and there'll be great regulation. And so, you know, I my, my own children won't be as affected. Um, but <laughs> here we are. Here we are, and he's started secondary school and come home and 
talked to me all about all of his friends having viewed porn um, and the, the teasing that goes on around um, not knowing what certain different things are, like 69s and threesomes, um, you know, and the kind of glamorizing of certain porn actors, etc. And this is in year seven, you know, so as an 11 year old. Um, so, so yes, it, it's relevant to, to all of us as parents. Um, and even when we have, you know, if and when we have things like age verification coming in and, you know, tighter regulation of porn, um, it's, it's still going to be out there. And I don't think we're ever going to be at a time where parents can just ignore this. We have to be having these conversations with our children. Um, and I guess my main tip is, Embrace the awkward. It, it may be quite a, these may be quite fumbling conversations uh, that feel a bit awkward. You, you might feel that you don't have the right words. That's all okay. It, in fact, I would say more than okay. It, it reflects the nature of the subject that this is awkward and it is hard. Um, and um, sometimes, in fact, I, I, I just thinking of some research I came across, which found that young people didn't really like it when their sex education was presented in this kind of very clinical, objective uh, kind of way that didn't reflect some of the embarrassment and awkwardness. So, so if you are a bit awkward with it, that's that's fine. Um, but my and and then I would go on to to advise parents to really focus on what we've been talking about today: that the business model. Um, that this isn't simply human sexuality; that the porn industry is attempting to. Um, get hold of your arousal, um, split it off from the other parts of who you are and shape it towards their profit. Um, so actually, in terms of libertarian notions of freedom, um, I would say let, let's reclaim that. Let's reclaim our freedom. For me, this is about, fundamentally, this, this is about freedom and it's about our autonomy and being in the driving seat of our sexuality rather than letting a corporation jump into that driving seat and drive it towards its own ends. And I think that that kind of conversation resonates with young people because they, probably more than, than all of us, are very attuned to their independence and freedom. And what is important to all of us as humans. Um, and so encouraging them and inviting them to see it through that lens, which for me is the fundamental lens to view it through, I think that that can lead to very fruitful conversations uh, that can avoid some of these unhelpful debates um, or, or simplistic things just around um, it's not realistic and things like that, which, you know, I, I don't think are as productive. Yeah, I think that's really, really good advice um, to talk about freedom and reclaim freedom and to talk about the business model. Of course, that's much easier than talking about the content. And as you say, even with regulation, porn is still going to be out there. So we are still going to have to find ways of talking to children about it. And what do you think is the answer? Do you think we should be recommending avoidance and abstinence? Or is there a sort of way of increasing resilience to pornography in some other sense? Again, I would say both and. So, yes, I would be promoting um, avoidance. People often ask the question about ethical porn you know, I say that there's an interesting debate around that. I'm, I would personally be kind of agnostic on it. The thing is, is that if you are, 
you know, you could go onto a porn site and try and find some ethical porn, but in that process, you were going to be bombarded with a lot of other stuff. So you were running that risk of being ensnared with other things. I would be advocating much more discussion with from schools, from parents, between young people themselves, around um, what a positive and healthy and ethical sexuality can comprise, and really kind of thickening and enriching our, our understanding of that, um, and then following those tracks. So, uh, you know, like I've talked about, thinking about attunement and how we can connect to our own feelings within sexual experiencing and, is it, is, and those of the other person. I'm interested in approaches like Tantra. Um, well, when I say Tantra, um, I suppose I'm talking about kind of modern movements that are trying to help us embrace the sexuality, our sexuality as a core part of who we are, and that kind of bodily acceptance and attunement. So I would be really interested in, in that kind of pathway forward. And I think if we were able to have more conversations with young people about those forms of sexuality, then that will be building resilience. Um, and for me, the other part of resilience would be um, encouraging young people, um, and again, us all, to become more aware of what our core values are um, and how core they are to us and how we can act in line with them. Um, and being aware of invitations all around us that pull us away from those core parts of ourselves. So kind of spotting those invitations and unhooking from them. Um, so that, that's what I'm kind of working with schools on um, and advising them to be doing with young people. Um, but we can also be doing this through our day to day conversations with our own children. I'm really pleased to hear you mention schools there, because I think one of the small but positive forward movements that we've seen has been the inclusion of relationship and sex education um, as part of the national curriculum. I think that's something that you know we were all hoping for. And I know, you know a mutual colleague of ours, John, Jonathan Bagley at the PSHE Association, did a lot of work around that. But I think finding better ways to uh, educate young people about these subjects and talk to them about it um, is just so important. But I'm I'm smiling to myself at your idea that perhaps by the time your son was 12, regulation would have caught up and dealt with this. Uh, final question for you today is, how do you think the government's done? Are you pleased or hopeful about the belated inclusion of pornography in the online safety bill? Or do you think it's just another tiny, tiny chink in, in our armour? I am very positive about it. Um, it's frustrating. We should never have had to have the battle that we did have to, to get it in there. But it, but it is there and that's fantastic. Um, yeah, and I think it, there's potential for it to have a um, significant impact some people say, well, what's the point of age verification because teenagers are really good at getting around blocks? Well, yes, of course they are. But, you know, there's very simple psychology here. You make something harder and few, harder to do and fewer people do it. Um, and, and so that's what, for me, age verification is all about. It's part of a, I want to see it as part of a much wider public health approach towards pornography as a high-risk commodity just as we would have a public health approach towards tobacco, alcohol, gambling, etc. Um, and age verification being an important part of that. I think where we now need to go with age verification is to ensure that it is timely, 
you know, it was seven years ago now that the Conservative government announced that they were going to um, do age verification. It's just ridiculous that we're seven years down the line. It hasn't happened yet. So we, we need some firm commitment from government that it's going to happen within a very near time scale. Um, and also we need to make sure that it's effective. So Ofcom need to have the powers to be able to um, proactively ban multiple websites without having to go to court every time to get a court order that that's just not going to be workable so it needs to be workable it needs to be timely um, and if it is both of those things then then yes I'm very optimistic about its impacts uh, along with all of the wider things that we need to be doing like you said um, support for parents and um, relationships and sex education addressing this uh, within schools as well. Yes, a lot of ifs and buts there about its workability and timeliness. Um, but I do think you're absolutely right about the public health approach. I suspect we also need a more of a public health approach to gambling, actually. Um, but thank you so much for talking to us, Ellie. It's such a difficult subject and um, you've cut a way through it with great clarity. And um, the point I take away certainly is that it's so vital to recapture the humanity in sex because the alternative is really alarming, the spread of selfishness and self-gratification that ripples out into wider relationships is really damaging. So thank you so much for talking to us. It's been really fascinating. Absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me and hope to speak again soon. Thank you for listening to Tech Shock from Parent Zone. I'm Vicky Shotbolt. And I'm Geraldine Bedell. Listen to Tech Shock every week on a Monday, wherever you get your podcasts. Don't forget to sign up, download, and please do give us a five star rating so other people can be helped to find us. Mm-hmm.